Tooth and Claw, Issue 7, Lincoln, England, Present Day. It was late morning when Ross and Drake met Howard in the foyer of the Castle Hotel, noon riding in on stifled sunbeams. Though the rain had ceased for the moment, the pallid sky still bore dark streaks of thicker cloud that slowly bubbled, an uncertain shifting overhead. After the meeting with Duckstone Senior, they'd headed back to the hotel in silence, Drake staring out of the side window at the blur of streetlight and the dripping walls of the city. Howard's desultory attempt at questioning them had quickly faded into a dull, frowning silence, whilst Ross struggled to marshal the rush of thoughts passing through him. Howard left them on the wet crunch of gravel, and as they passed through the grand arch of the main entrance, Drake turned to Ross, fixing him with a look. A look Ross hadn't seen before. Tomorrow, Eric, he said. I'm tired. Need to sleep on this. I'm going to call in first, though, Phil Humphrey in on what's happened. They both overslept and missed breakfast, the early morning hours spent in and out of ruptured dreams. You both look like death, Howard said cheerily as they walked out to his car. Think I'm glad to keep my nose out of things and play chauffeur. Drake opened the passenger door and looked sharply at him. Just for the morning. Ross and I will take the car. You can drop yourself at the station. A few errands first, however. What do you mean, said Howard. Drake mimicked Howard's earlier cheer, an eerily accurate impression of his voice. I mean, you'll drive us around while we run a couple of errands, then drop yourself at the station. Agent Ross and I will take the car. Howard was unsettled by the smile beginning to stretch across Drake's face. There was something inviting in it, beckoning, but at the same time a warning. He said nothing. Drake slapped his hands together. Excellent. Something to eat first. How would you feel about a Lincolnshire sausage from the market? Ross nodded eagerly. Sounds great. His stomach had calmed enough that he was now seriously hungry. Settled then. After that, Howard, we'll need somewhere we can pick up a couple of pairs of good Wellington boots. Uh, yeah, sure. There's a shop just over the road from the market. As he walked into the police station, Howard was still trying to reconcile his affront at having his car taken from him, with the feeling that he had just escaped some horrific experience. Ross chuckled to himself. Drake threw the keys to him and glanced at the despondent detective as he trudged away. He's harmless, but more of a hindrance than a help for today's work. You drive. South of the city again. A light drizzle fluttered in and out as the wind picked up, the land flattening and the grey of the sky lowering to consume more and more of the horizon. Ross felt more comfortable with a full belly and Howard out of the way. Drake idly gave directions and fiddled with the radio, steering the frequency away from the talk station it was set on to a show playing old soul hits. What did Humphrey have to say then, Ross said, guiding the car around a wide corner the swish of the wipers flicking the windscreen in and out of focus. Would probably help if I knew what you told him as well. Drake smiled and turned the radio off. He wants us to focus all our efforts on the worm. I guessed as much, Ross frowned. Is this the worm referred to in the book of Piers Shonks? 
Drake raised an eyebrow. The book of Piers Shonks. I have spent time in the archives, believe it or not. Time well spent. And yes, it's the very same worm. And it's a problem. I didn't think he still existed. It's been centuries since a record of him appearing anywhere. Since the agreement, there's not been much need of him, Drake said matter-of-factly. Doesn't mean he ever went away. If the things Ross had read in the archives were true, then they really did have a problem. With the duckstone flare-up still smouldering, another ancient one making a move on humans could be disastrous, especially if the creature was as dangerous as the worm was purported to be. Ross remembered the description from the book of Piers Shonks. I found the twisted creature coiled and cold, infesting shallows hard by Ely Fen. A wingless serpent, oily, dark and old, corroded flesh and bones strewn round his noxious den. My hounds dared not to near it, whining, cowed. They feareth pointed teeth and bloodied lips. Its flesh stripped rotting slime, no wound allowed. Infernal beast arisen from Satan's darkest pits. My blade repulsed, the creature coiled, then struck. O oh, cursed newt impervious to swords. My life was saved by neither skill nor luck. By grace of God alone, I lived to pen these words. Shonks went on to tell of his valiant retreat after the beast had mauled one of his favorite hounds, ending with an admonition to wear the worm's foul maw. Ross smiled to himself. Brave Shonks may have been, but he was annoyingly vague on details of how to, you know, kill the thing. The book was almost 1,000 years old, though, long before the agreement when they roamed the country freely. Ross frowned. Were they looking for a man or the terrible creature described? Drake sensed Ross's thoughts. He's been in human form since the agreement, as far as we know. That's when he really started working hits. Only on his own kind, though. If he's taken a contract on the Ardalian gang, it's not only a serious breach of the agreement, it suggests Duckstone isn't the only one feeling restricted. So what are we looking for, Ross said. Drake motioned him to turn off the main road and down a long, narrow track that stretched straight through miles and miles of sodden field. Last record we had of him was around this part of the fens. The streams and meres in this area are all connected and hide varying depths and unvisited routes. Perfect for a worm. When Duckstone said about spending a penny in the bog, it's how they summon him. An old penny is thrown into the marsh and the worm is called on. He then decides whether to take the job or not. And takes a penny payment. He does it for the love of the work, Drake said coldly. And when he takes the penny, he doesn't stop until the job is done. So we're going to have to stop him for good. Drake paused and thought briefly. Probably. Though I'd rather avoid it if we can. Maybe he'll bend his rules seeing as he broke ours. Pull up in here. Ross swung the car gently into a tiny lane that ran alongside a wide creek. They were miles from any main road now, in the middle of endless flat green. Drake opened the car door and swung his legs out. Get your boots on. Drake led them down the lane until they came to a clump of tall nettles at the edge of the bank. He looked around and nodded. This is as good a spot as any. He reached into his coat and took out a clean white towel. He looked at Ross with a grin. I'm sure the hotel won't miss this. He took his coat off. Okay, going for a dip, are we? I am, Drake said, still smiling. 
He started unbuttoning his shirt and undid his tie. He shivered in the wind. You're nuts, said Ross. Oh, it's chilly. His chest was bare now. He kicked off his shoes and pulled his socks off, then started on his belt. He stopped, noticing Ross shaking his head. I know it seems crazy, he said more seriously. I remember what I told you in the bus shelter. You didn't tell me very much. Fair enough, you got me. But this is similar to what happened at the stadium. I can locate him from here, I hope. Drake took off his trousers and underwear and moved to the edge of the bank, stepping carefully between the leaves of iris and great water dock. He turned to Ross. Whatever happens, Eric, do not follow me into the water. Ross looked at the naked man standing in the sharp wind and stabbing rain. Huh, I wasn't planning on it. I'm serious, Drake said, turning back to face the cratered black sheen of the water. He put his left foot forward into the creek, feeling the mud between his toes and the bite of small pebbles and root in his heel. He calmly walked forward into the middle of the creek, then turned into the current. The water was up over his waist now, a treacly surge of darkness around his torso. The scent of grassy freshness was slowly swallowed up by a thick peel of peat stench that curled through the falling rain and hung in the gloom. Drake looked up at the sky and opened his mouth to the elements, taking in a big gasp of air with the descending rain. He closed his eyes and slipped steadily down, bending at the knees so he sank vertically. The water surface tensed again as he disappeared beneath it. Ross pulled his coat tight around him. The rain was intensifying and the sky above was darkening quickly. The air seemed to move around him with more agency now, twisting and reversing in short, powerful gusts, whipping debris and soil up into the spirals of agitation. The blades of fen bedstraw around his feet rippling like waves as he stared at the spot where Drake had submerged. A burgeoning static danced in the air. The surface of the water began to simmer. The already disturbed tension then erupted into a larger palpitations, a great commotion under the heavy liquid film struggling to contain the turbulence. Ross stepped towards the water's edge, leaning over to try and see into the maelstrom. Suddenly a crack of thunder behind him. Ross started, nearly falling into the creek. He thrust his weight backwards and pivoted down onto his backside, clasping a clump of thistle to steady himself. He swore and swatted at the offending spikes. When he looked back at the water, the commotion had stopped, only weakening ripples from where Drake had been, slowly breaking up into the rain-pocked creek. Drake? Ross yelled as he dragged himself back to his feet. Drake! His words ricocheted off howling gusts of wind, but were entirely lost as another clap of thunder split the air. The harried reeds the only noise left in the immediate silence. Then, a hundred yards or so up the creek, there was another crash. That wasn't thunder, thought Ross. He looked up at the source of the sound and saw Drake, bursting straight up into the air so his feet almost came out of the water, his hands thrust high above him. He splashed back down into the creek. Ross sprinted down the lane until he was level with Drake, who was wearily hauling himself onto the reeds. Ross grabbed an arm and pulled him up, then draped the towel around his partner. Did it work? he asked in astonishment. Drake patted him on the shoulder and stood back wrapping the towel around his waist, then running his hands through his wet hair. He wiped smears of mud from his face and brushed water from his skin. He breathed deeply, then his shoulders fell into tired relief. There was a wide, searching quality to his eyes, flashing back the merged grey and green of the landscape. It did, he said with a certain satisfaction. 
He pointed to a small barn way off in the distance. That is the worm's lair. Sydney, Australia, 15 years earlier. Chen Tang was sat cross-legged on an upturned crate in the storeroom, washing the blood from his hands in a small wooden bowl that was cradled in his lap. His breath was slow and calm, his movements almost languorous as he dipped his hands in and out of the water, the red streaks oiling the dark hair on his forearms, the crimson blackened. Robert's head throbbed as Lianhua wiped the blood from his own face, her stern gaze focused on him and nothing else. He was propped on some cushions against the wall, the fluorescent light hurting his eyes. He glanced through the doorway to the shop front. The closed sign was swung round, the lights were off. They've gone, I take it. Chen Tang spoke first. Gone, but they will be back, and they won't be alone, I fear. Let's call the police then, Robert replied. This has already gone too far. Chen Tang shook his head and laughed softly. We cannot involve the police. This will be settled the old way. Robert shook his head. What does that mean? It means the police won't be able to do anything, except die. The old man placed the bowl down and wiped his hands on a dishcloth. Things have progressed remarkably quickly, I must say. I wanted more time with you, Robert. He looked directly at Robert now. A deep frown spread across his brow. But you must go and never come back. His voice snagged in his throat as he turned his gaze to Lianhua. And you must take my granddaughter with you. Robert caught the flash of jet in her eyes as she snapped her head from him. No, I will not leave you, grandfather. You must, child. That half-breed will return. He sensed the change in Robert. He will return and he will bring his Shan Chu with him. Lianhua rose to her feet, her hands trembling. She knelt in front of her grandfather and took his hands in hers. If the Shan Chu comes, you cannot face them alone. What is a Shan Chu? Robert raised himself, his head pounding. Chen Tang looked up at him and then back down at Lianhua, a weary smile skirting his lips. He sighed deeply. Come, Robert, sit with us. I don't have long, but I will tell you what I can of what you need to know. But then, you must both go. Lianhua moved to protest again, but he squeezed her hands and shook his head. It must be this way, Lianhua. Robert walked over to them and knelt next to her. He placed a soft hand on her shoulder. I doubt there's anything you can say that will make either of us leave you alone, but let's hear it. Lianhua turned and smiled with gratitude, Robert providing a momentary relief from her utter dread. Chen Tang looked at them both and smiled again before a nimbus of concern enveloped him. That half-breed, Johnny, is the son of the Shan Chu of the Triads here in Sydney, the whole of New South Wales, in fact. The Shan Chu is the mountain master, the 489, the boss. He has a Western name, a business name, but he is a Fu Kang Long from far beneath the earth, and I have known him for centuries. The old man's words carried the burden of utter truth. Robert didn't understand exactly what they referred to, but Chen Tang's words vibrated from within him also. Chen Tang sensed this simpatico. Robert, you have many questions, I know. We do not have time for me to answer them, and I am sorry for that. What you must know now is that here, in this city, Triad is Dragon. 
course, not every Chai is, not even the Chohai, but some of the Hong Kwan are. Robert looked at him, bewildered. Chen Tang tried again. The soldiers on the street are all men, but some of the turf lords are of tooth and claw, and the Shan Chu is father of them all. The old man sighed again, a pained look dawning on his wizened face. Back in the mother country, I too was triad for many years, but this Fu Kang Long and I were rivals back before the great change, gravely defending our lands and wishing despair on the other, as water and earth must always abut each other, so we fought. After the change, we hid amongst men, forming triads so we still maintained lordship, a new subjugation. Fu Kang Long and I battled through many ages before he trailed off, the depth of his memory making old wounds fresh once more. Before I chose to renounce the ways of the triad, the ways of tooth and claw, and came here to Australia with my darling Lian Hua. I did not guess he would follow. His face was tightened into anger now, his breath shortening, colour blushing his cheeks. I have hidden in plain sight, so long in the form of a man and with charms to deceive even half-breeds as to my true nature. I have paid my protection always, head bowed, hat in hand, a harmless old cook. I knew Fu Kang Long had come, but I did not know he was here. Now the half-breed will tell him, he won't even need to tell him. Fu Kang Long will fill my power on him and he will know it is Chen Tang. Lian Hua raised one hand to her mouth, the other racing up to grasp Chen Tang's apron. Grandfather, if he is coming, we must all go. What are you going to do here, by yourself? He'll kill you. Chen Tang rocked his head back with a snap and laughed, the sound seeming to stretch across the masses of frequency, filling the room suddenly with a density of heat, the particles of air moving quicker. My child, your grandfather must look so decrepit. I have not changed for many, many years now, but am I not still Chen Tang? He jumped from the crate and stood tall, Robert and Lian Hua falling backwards in shock. The old man seemed larger now, as he began to circle his arms in front of his chest. The air dragged in a shimmering wake behind the fluid movements. Chen Tang, mightiest of the Kiao, terror of the great rivers and scourge of the running deep. I would smash the ground and cut away the earth before me. No Fu Kang Long would keep his treasures safe from me if I desired them. Robert moved to Lian Hua and took her in his arms as they cowered. Chen Tang bristled with energy now. The hair on his arms stood tall and the light around him pulsed. He looked down at them and saw their fear. He ceased the movement of his arms and appeared to shrink again the throbbing of the space around him, flickering and snuffing out, the room flexing back into normal dimensions. But no, Lian Hua, you are probably right. He eased himself back onto the crepe with the slow, concentrated creak of an old man. It has been so long and he will have kept himself healthy. He would not have allowed himself to age as I have. Well, what else am I to do? Lian Hua moved toward him again, two small tears slipping down her cheeks. Grandfather, we can all go. Just leave Sydney, go somewhere else, anywhere else. You don't have to face this alone. You don't even need to face it. Chen Tang smiled and shook his head. They will follow us, my child, and they will find us. Fu Kang Long may not scour the world to have a final reckoning with me, but he will to find Robert. I don't understand, Lian Hua said, looking at Robert. He saw fear dancing in the dark of her eyes. Neither do I, Robert replied. 
He wanted to say something, anything, to find a solution. Chen Tang looked at him. There is no way you should have survived the blood transfusion, Robert. There are dragons and there are men. Sometimes dragons mate with humans. Half-breeds are born, yes, but they are stunted creatures. Some can change, but only partially. All are given some of their dragon parents' power. How it manifests varies. You are not born of dragon, Robert, but you have dragon blood in you. You feel it, don't you? The surging of energy, the layers of the world you sense that weren't there before. The elements of the universe connecting with your own being. Robert nodded. I do feel it. I just don't know what it is. Not even I can tell you, Robert, the old man continued. Never have the bloods been mixed in this way. Whenever it has been tried in the past, the human has died horribly. It's been tried before. Chen Tang said nothing. He looked hard at Robert, searching one last time for whatever assurance he needed. Robert felt penetrated, as if the old man could see into his veins, vessels racing through his plasma, shining out some essential facet of his nature. Chen Tang smiled again, pushed himself to his feet and moved to the back wall. He shoved a heavy cupboard aside with the palm of his hand, exposing the dusty brickwork behind. He tapped his fingers on one of the large bricks in a quick syncopation, drawing darting symbols on the crumbling red. There was a snapping sound. A faint green light flashed around the cement of the brick, which then launched itself out a couple of meters and landed with a thud on the floor. Chen Tang reached into the hole and drew out a large leather book. He blew away a cloud of dust and ran his fingers over the cover. He walked back over to them and handed the book to Robert. This will tell you everything. Robert held the book and gazed at the cover. It was black leather, scratched and faded with age. No words were printed on it, but as Robert moved it in the light, it seemed some of the scratches and marks glowed and even moved, joining and separating to create glimpses of characters. Unknown symbols and letters threatened to coalesce into legible figures, but evaporated again as the book moved or as Robert crooked his neck to find an angle that would illuminate the fleeting linguistic dance. The Enoir had moved to his side now and looked at the book with wonder. Grandfather, is that? But the old man held out a hand to stop her, his face turned towards the shop front. No time, my child. He is here. Written and recorded by James Fisher. Edited and read by Andy Bennett. Music by Aquifer.